This episode of the podcast was recorded before Nadine Sahaway, the Secretary of State for Education for England, had made an announcement at the COP26 summit in Glasgow about a new draft sustainability and climate change strategy. The government's aim is to build on the draft over the next six months in collaboration with young people, teachers, sustainability experts and environmentalists before a final strategy is published in April 2022. The draft strategy includes a proposal to teach climate change education through a model science curriculum, which will be in place by 2023. If we can start to change the educational experience of kids now, they will be the leaders of that change because they will get it instinctively. We talk about the the digital native generation. Well, these will be the sort of sustainable native generation that will come through and they can be driving the change that the, the world urgently needs. Bringing you the stories behind the standards. This is the BSI Education Podcast with Matthew Childs and Cindy Paragill. Today's episode is on climate and sustainability education. Hello, my name is Matthew Childs and I am with... Cindy Parakill. Hello, Cindy. How are you? Never been better. And you? So far, so good. Now, the aim of this podcast is to bring you the stories behind the standards. The voice you heard at the top of the episode was Lord Jim Knight, talking about effects he hopes will take place if he's successful in putting climate and sustainability education at the heart of the national curriculum in schools. Yes, Jim is a sponsor of a private member's bill starting the House of Lords. The aim of the bill is to make provision in the national curriculum regarding sustainable citizenship and protection of the environment. Yes, private members' bills are public bills introduced by MPs and Lords who are not government ministers. As with other public bills, their purpose is to change the law as it applies to the general population. A minority of private members' bills become law, but by creating publicity around an issue, they may affect legislation indirectly. Now, I have a fascinating conversation with Jim, and we have split this into two parts. In part one, Jim talks about some of his personal connections to climate and sustainability education and the actual changes to the national curriculum being proposed in the bill. In part two, Jim talks about how other countries are approaching the issue of climate education in schools and the current progress of the bill through the various parliamentary stages. He also sets out some of the long-term changes to the labour market he hopes might be secured by making these changes to the national curriculum. Sandwiched between these two slices of Jim, we have our standards desk of news and the latest of our My Favourite Standard. This time, we hear from BSI's Lucy Carter talking about why BS 8560, Code of Practice for the Design of Buildings Incorporating Safe Work at Height, is so important to her. Indeed. Now, a reminder that for more information on BSI education, go to bsigroup.com forward slash education. Do please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the podcast and you listen to us via Apple Podcasts, then please consider giving us a five star rating. It's quick and easy and it really does make a difference to us being found by search and recommendations. Share us on social media using that hashtag BSIEdPod. And if you have any comments or questions about this episode or previous episodes, or even ideas for future episodes, then do please get in touch at education at bsigroup.com. We really welcome your feedback. (laughs) 
Do you want to know more about the role and purpose of standards in the modern world? Then BSI's free online course, The Power of Standards, is for you. Through its three modules, you'll learn about what standards are, why organizations use them, how they are made, and how and why people get involved in standards making. The course is designed to last around 30 minutes, but you don't need to complete it all at once. You can stop at any point and restart again later, when you're ready. To find out more, visit bsigroup.com forward slash education. In this first part of my conversation with Jim Knight, he talks about some of his personal connections to the issue of climate education and why he believes starting with young people at school is the best way to drive behaviour change for us all. He also talks us through the particular changes to the national curriculum being proposed in his private member's bill. But we started, as we usually do on the podcast, with personal journeys. So, Lord Jim Knight, welcome to the BSI Education Podcast. It's a joy to join you. Great to have you here. Now, Now, Jim, you've had a rich and varied career. Over the past 20 years alone, you've held senior positions in education startups and had leadership and governance roles in established organisations in education and edtech, including at the Times Educational Supplement. And I know you are passionate about teacher training and improving public services through digital technology. You've been an MP, a minister for schools, and since 2009, you've sat in the House of Lords. Now, we love to hear about our guest journeys here on the podcast. How would you describe yours? Well, um, I've ridden my luck pretty well, I think. (laughs) Um, Look, I, I... My big passion is education, and there are times when um, I, I sort of use my own journey to reflect on on why i have that passion for education but you know i was privileged enough to have parents who could afford to pay for a private school education which worked pretty well for me um as it was then um my brother and i went to the same school we were the first in our family to go to university we both went to cambridge blah 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 um so very privileged I formed a theatre company in my final year with um, Sam Mendes and Tom Hollander and Tom Piper and a bunch of people and had a career in theatre until I realised that I was pretty angry with the way the country was being governed by Mrs Thatcher, the way my town was being governed by some Conservatives. So I decided to go into politics, which involved spending 10 years selling telephone directory advertising while I waited to get elected in a professional role but at the same time i was mayor of my town Froome, in somerset and really enjoyed local politics um i then became a politician so that was career number three um and had an amazing nine years including those three years as schools minister but a, a final year as employment minister in gordon's cabinet where i kind of saw some of the problems that we weren't fixing in education having come from schools um playing out in the labor market and um and that was immediately after the 2008 banking crash and i was on the national economic council dealing with things and then i got the golden parachute into the house of lords from from gordon brown and uh career number four then became mixing being a recovering politician uh legislating 
in the Lords, and I'm currently doing some really interesting work around how we regulate social media through the Joint Committee on Online Harms, and and then juggling that with um, work in education and uh, technology, as you said, with TEZ principally, but now with a whole bunch of other things, including including work around climate change and education. Now, it's on that uh, that issue of climate change and sustainability education that we're obviously invited to talk about today. So why is this particular issue for young people so important to you? You know, why are you banging this particular drum? My personal connection perhaps comes from um, an, an academic background as a geographer in a way. So, you know, I've known that we've got a problem since the 1970s. And yet, my carbon footprint, personally, and my generation's carbon footprint is catastrophic. And so, there's a degree of guilt that, you know, I'm from the generation that 90% of the carbon emissions have come from my generation, you know, have come during my lifetime. Um, uh, And we've got to do something about it. And then, you know, I've got a 10-year-old stepdaughter, and she's likely you know, with a fair wind to live into the next century and to be working through until, what, 2070, somewhere like that. If I, if I look at the projections of what the planet and therefore her lifestyle will be like in 2070 or when she dies, you know, all, you know, all being well, she'll make it to the next century. It's really catastrophic unless we do something. And uh, so I'm much more motivated around trying to get the change to happen. And I think a bulk of the, you know, the majority of the change that's got to happen in order to make the planet more sustainable has got to be through public behavior change and what better place to start than schools. And it so happens that the demographic that is most exercised predictably are young people you know they know what their future looks like if if the world's leaders and the general public don't change their behavior and they're impatient so why wouldn't we start with them and start to give them some of the tools of empowerment and efficacy to to show them what they personally can do to change their own behavior to change their family's behavior to change the behavior in schools to make them carbon zero Uh, and that can be the beginnings of a snowball that can result in us getting things back on track and giving them a decent future. So tell us about your private members bill then. What's in it and what is it seeking to achieve? The bill is, as with all private members bills, it has to be relatively short and simple. So in this case, the Education and you know, environment and sustainable citizenship bill is seeking to change the national curriculum to add a third aim to the national curriculum to instill an ethos to care for oneself, for others, and for the natural environment for present and future generations. And then additionally, it's seeking to change the citizenship subject that we teach in schools into a sustainable citizenship subject. This is borrowing an idea that's been implemented in Italy. 
And that way, we're finding some timetable and curriculum time within an already crowded system in our schools to be able to do some of this work. Uh, and as I say, I think it's most important that this is action learning. This is young people being led in how to lead change. I want to come back in a second to to where uh, you feel the, curric- the the particular place where this uh, change would occur. You mentioned there about citizenship, but right at the start of your speech in the House of Lords, introducing the bill, you said that this issue is a no brainer. And there is significant support from teachers, students and stakeholder organisations for climate and sustainability education. But we've been here before, haven't we? As you yourself have said, you've had experiences as a schools minister facing numerous requests to address societal changes through the curriculum. So don't good schools teach this anyway? Some schools do. Uh, it, It takes a brave leader to go beyond the accountability straitjacket that we have on our schools at the moment and to do something else other than that which they are required to do. All they are required to do is to teach some aspects of climate change and the science behind climate change in science and in geography. Geography is not a compulsory subject beyond the age of 14. Um, Science is but the evidence is there that young people don't feel that they're really being taught properly about climate change. They don't understand what they should do about it. They leave school, leave primary school, understanding what the greenhouse effect is, but they don't understand what their actions, how their actions really impact on it. You know, the dots are not joined up, and they, and it's all about knowledge and teaching knowledge. It's not about teaching what you do with that knowledge and how how your actions can have an impact. And, and I, I fundamentally believe that if we're going to have a sustainable future, we've got to do that. So by putting it sort of, by, by arguing the case for this to go within citizenship education and not within sort of science or geography or other subjects, it's, it's more than knowledge then. It's more about just as much about skills and agency of young people. It is. And yeah, that's what, Uh, Countless others are saying, you know, I'm not unique in this, um, that, uh, you know, in part, my concern about this also comes from the levels of eco-anxiety, climate anxiety that young people have. You know, we have something of an epidemic of mental health problems amongst our young people that has been enhanced by some of the isolation and problems uh, attached to the pandemic and lockdown. And the last thing that young people need, on top of all of that anxiety that has been created through the pandemic, is hearing about how their planet and their future is eroding rapidly um, without any of the tools to believe that they can do anything about that. Yeah, I think for most of the population, climate change just feels like something that yet another thing that's being done to them and that they, ha- they are powerless to be able to do anything about. And they're just hoping that the uh, the world's leaders gathering in Glasgow at the moment will do something about it. Well, of course, we need the world's leaders to do something about it. But there are countless things that we all can do individually about it. And if we can get our schools to be net zero by 2030, which is a a campaign called Let's Go Zero that I'm also associated with, then young people can lead that change. They can be looking not only at 
how energy is sourced, but they can look at how food is sourced, how people are traveling to and from schools, what's being grown to capture carbon um, on the school estate, in classrooms, in gardens, and so on and so forth. There's a whole bunch of learning to then be had out of that. Um, that's that's knowledge-based learning, but there's a bunch of skills and mindset which can be nurtured as part of that, and it's really important. We'll hear the second part of my conversation with Jim shortly. But Cindy, it's that time in the episode. Shall we have the Stanners Desk of News? Yep, let's do it. The ISO Research Grant Winners The ISO Research Grant 2021 has been awarded to Dr. Sebastius Das and Dr. Matteo Zalio of Dublin City University. Their aim is to provide an evidence-based framework to explore the links between standards and the UN Sustainable Development Goals, how they are used and in what context they are adopted, and in particular for SDG 3, Good Health and Wellbeing. We featured the ISO Research Grant, a new annual award available for postgraduates researching standards and standardisation, back in episode 26 of the podcast. Standards are needed to help achieve net zero. That's the view of Antonio Guterres, United Nations Secretary General, speaking at COP26, announcing his decision to establish a group of experts to propose clear standards to measure and analyse net zero commitments from non-state actors. He said that although a number of countries have made credible commitments to net zero emissions, he has concerns over what he described as a deficit of credibility and a surplus of confusion over emissions reductions and net zero targets with different meanings and different metrics. And finally, mental health matters in education. When the COVID pandemic struck in early 2020, most education providers around the world had to shift their entire operations online at short notice. Since then, there's been unpredictability for students and teachers alike. Numerous studies have demonstrated its profound impact on the mental health of school and university staff, both during lockdown periods and when returning to the classroom. Published earlier this year, the standard ISO 45003, which we looked at in episode 42, aims to assist organisations to put in place good practice for managing employee psychological health and well-being. According to ISO, many education providers are implementing the standard, and while it's too early to see the full effect, there are signs it's producing some positive changes. And that's the Stand's Desk of News. My favourite standard. This My Favourite Standard comes courtesy of Lucy Carter, from the content development team at BSI. She tells us about why the standard BS8560, Code of Practice for the Design of Buildings Incorporating Safe Work at Height, is so important to her. The Claire Price, Lucy mentions, is a colleague here at BSI. Hi, my name is Lucy Carter and I work in the content development team at BSI. I'm managing a team of editorial project managers who are working on developing and publishing standards. So I'm dealing with many different standards each day and there are so many to choose from. But in the end, I decided to talk about a standard that I was closely involved in during the development process. And the whole project is so memorable that it still comes to mind for me, even now about 
10 or so years later. And that standard is BS8560, Code of Practice for the Design of Buildings Incorporating Safe Work at Height. So I joined BSI in 2010 in the Editorial Project Manager role, although we were known as content developers at the time, and started working on this project about six months later. This was a brand new standard with no content to work with, so everything needed to be brought together from scratch. And these types of standards are sometimes the hardest to get up and running. Claire Price had been working with Technical Committee B209 on this idea for some time and had pulled together a passionate drafting panel to deliver the standard. I remember well the early stages of the project because it felt like there was endless discussion about what the standard should cover, how it needed to only be a series of images without too many words, or even no words because architects prefer images to words, and also how useful this standard would be once published. Although it was difficult to put pen to paper during that early phase, the time was usefully spent working together to gain consensus over the content of the standard at a high level about where in the design process this needed to be incorporated and at a more detailed level about how safe working at height can be minimised and what solutions can be provided, what equipment to use and when, etc. This was a collaborative process and it was easy to see everyone's passion for the subject through the way they tried to persuade each other to buy into their points of view. Eventually, we did get some words onto the page. More words than images in the end, but the standard was taking shape and I enjoyed being part of that development process and working with people driven to make a positive impact on their industry. The project took over two years to complete the standard and publish, and in that time I became a mini expert on the subject area and was able to spot a cherry picker or a mupe when I saw one, something I wouldn't have been able to do beforehand. While we were working on the project, I went on a holiday to Peru and saw a number of buildings being worked on and was horrified by the lack of safe working out height going on and was able to point out all of these issues to my husband who was delighted by this. Throughout the project, the committee maintained their passion for the subject, debating it as often as possible. In a minute, I had to make sure we were always going over old ground, trying to undo decisions made previously. For me, it was a learning curve in how to develop a standard, how to develop relationships with committees and panels, and leverage them when needed to push the project along and make progress. It was frustrating at times, but I know I also contributed a lot by building those relationships. I was able to give guidance on the structure of the standard and how best to word what they were trying to say, and also to give feedback and to push when needed. All in all, it is a standard that I was closely involved in, but because it took such a collaborative effort to create over such a significant period of time, it has stuck with me ever since. In this second part of my conversation with Jim Knight, he tells us about the parliamentary process for his private member's bill and the chances of success in it hitting the statute books. He also speculates about the labour market changes which might result if climate and sustainability education are indeed placed at the heart of the curriculum in schools. But we start with discussing how other countries are approaching the issue of sustainability education. Now, Jim, BSI, in fact, all standards bodies are good practice organisations. And you mentioned Italy earlier on. So I'm interested in your views on good practice taking place in other education systems around the world on this issue. I mean, how do we in the UK compare at the moment? Well, England 
as opposed to the UK, because we have a delegated system of education, is a bit of an outlier in being obsessed about academic knowledge and uh, pretty poor on the application of that knowledge. Um, and uh, Wales and Scotland have incidentally gone much further towards a more rounded curriculum in terms of the emotional, social, uh, as well as cognitive development of of children. Um, Italy, I've mentioned, are the first to introduce a statutory sustainable citizenship subject that is uh, one hour a week for every school-aged child in Italy. Um, It's early days for that, but that's the beginnings of what a lot of people in the sustainable education, the climate change movement are calling for. Mexico are making some right moves. New Zealand have done a good job. The Scandinavians do a pretty good job. Um, uh, the whole world needs to do more, I think, but um, we are, we're quite a long way behind the curve. I was going to ask you that. I mean, for this to be truly effective, do all countries and education systems have to make similar changes too? Well, yes, of course. But that doesn't mean that we have to sit and wait. Uh, you know, there's, this is a a long-running um, excuse for inaction on climate. You know, people say, well, what's the point us doing anything because China's not or whatever. Um, every every bit of conservation that we do for our planet, everything we do to connect better with nature, to protect species, to reduce our carbon emission, everything helps. Every little bit helps, and we need to get on with it. And you know, wh- why not be a leader rather than be a follower? Would be my my response to that in the end. Now, what's the parliamentary process for the bill? And I suppose what what's the latest? And I suppose the killer question is, you know, what are the chances of this actually hitting the statute books? Uh, the latest is I'm waiting to hear when we will have a committee stage of the bill. The parliamentary geeks might know that every bill has three different readings, three different hearings, plus a committee stage. Um, plus a report of the committee. So five stages in each house, and we've cleared the first two stages in the House of Lords. So yeah, we have eight more stages to go before it would become law. And that all has to be done within a time window before the next Queen's speech, which would likely be midway through next year. So you know, the answer to your killer question is it's unlikely to make it into the statute books because the government are sceptical about it because you know they uh, think that everything is fine and dandy in the curriculum. Um, but I, I think it's been, and it remains, really helpful in galvanising people across parties because I've had good support from across parties and showing and surfacing the issue, showing what the government's current position is and helping them go on a journey towards getting into the right place. And you, know, you never know, there's talk of a government consultation on sustainable uh, sustainability and education. Um, and, you know, I would hope that what we're doing in Parliament at the moment through my bill is helping get them into the right place. 
I suppose just it's true is that you never quite know what what events will will will, will happen. I mean, who would have imagined eighteen months ago? Uh, a, you know, huge swathes of people working online almost overnight. You know, because of, because of what happened with COVID, so things can can accelerate very quickly. I suppose they can, and and you know, yeah. the, the COVID experience. One of the other things I'd say about it is, um, there was there we've all had moments in the last eighteen months where I don't know we've gone out and it's felt dystopian and apocalyptic. You know, and we've sort of seen this remarkable change in all of our behavior and how bleak in some ways it can feel when the, you know, the, the, the streets are empty, etc. Um, that, But we always knew it as temporary. We know that the pandemic will ultimately pass, but it's a glimpse into what the future could be like, you know, with a much more permanent change if the earth goes beyond its tipping point and there is no retreat back from the damage that we've done as a race to the planet. So fast forward in, in time for us, if you, if you can. So a child starting reception this year will leave school in 2035 and emerge, as you've said in other places, into a carbon-free world. Now, if you are successful in securing these curriculum changes, whether it be during this parliament or, or in future parliaments, what different sort of citizen would they be, do you think, compared to a student who's finishing their school career this year? Well, the, the child finishing their schooling this year is going to end up working in a, a labour market where every job will have to be a green job and they will have to learn some of those skills and, and essentially retrofit a mindset around um, an economy that is, is run on the basis of being zero carbon and being sustainable, uh, which would be a, a very different economy. You know, not only will we be moving around differently and consuming our food differently and and buying things differently, um, and and there'll be whole swathes of jobs that haven't been invented yet, um, but we will be behaving differently. Um, you know, we won't be consuming as much. We'll be making things last longer. We'll just be. We just need a, a, a different set of skills and mindsets and the these people leaving school now along with the rest of us are going to have to sort of relearn all of that um or learn it for the first time if we can start to change the educational experience of kids now they will be the leaders of that change um because they will get it instinctively you know that we talk about the 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 digital native generation well these will be the sort of sustainable native generation that will come through and they can be driving the change that the world urgently needs our thanks to jim knight and lucy carter for talking to us for this episode and to you for listening to find out more about bsi's own activity on sustainability and climate action visit bsigroup.com and search sustainability You have been listening to an episode of the BSI Education Podcast. To find out more, visit bsigroup.com forward slash education. You just heard a stripped media production.